Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you listening online, watching online, good morning to you also. We continue our walk through the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 17. This morning we'll find out how the church at Thessalonica came to be. Acts chapter 17, we will review verses 1 through 9, but we will stand and I will read verses 1 through 4. So would you please stand. Acts chapter 17, the first four verses. Now when they had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as was his custom, went in to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Please be seated. I figure if I don't read so much, I can talk more. (laughs) Skilled Christians, that's uh, what we're going to consider. Paul, he was a moving target. A moving target is harder to hit than a stationary target. And he was just always on the move. And therefore, always targeted by Satan. Not that he was on the move, made him such a threat to hell. That was just one part of it. It's that the skills that he had, that he retained, that he learned and developed. And to, to gain a skill, one has to spend time using that discipline, that skill that they, are, uh, that they have. It's not automatic. Even for Paul, it took him time to really get a grasp on how to get the most out of his ministry. And we're going to see that, I hope, this morning. We'll now look at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Well, Amphibolus and Apollonia, they miss out for now. Paul and his team just passed through. But this Thessalonica, they came there. Well, you know, in, in our scripture, in the New Testament, we have Paul's letters which is God's word through Paul to the churches in Galatia, to the church at Philippi, and to the church at Thessalonica. Now, there are others. But we've already considered the church in Galatia in chapter 13 and 14, where Paul was stoned in that region. And the church at Philippi was the last chapter where he was beaten with rods. And now we come to Thessalonica, where he will eventually have to leave to save his life and He'll leave there, get to Berea, have to leave there too, and then he goes 192 miles to Athens and then moves forward to Corinth. On the move, chased from many cities, caused a riot because of his preaching. Uh, how, How every pastor, no, not every Sunday, but we do envy that he caused a riot by his preaching, but you couldn't do it every Sunday. Anyway, Thessalonica, we're now 19, 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. Paul is likely in his mid-50s at this time. And as we, he traveled, going the Ignatian way from there's a road that uh, cut across Macedonia, ancient Greece there. As he went that route, let's just look at how he was on the move. From Philippi to Amphibolus, 22 miles. From Amphibolus to Apollonia, 18 miles. Now he's walking. He may have hitched a ride on a cart from time to time, but that would have been a bumpy ride. 
from Apollonia to Thessalonica, 35 miles. Then from Thessalonica to Berea, which we get next session, 35 miles again. Leaving Berea for his life, he goes to Athens, 192 miles, and then from Athens to Corinth, 38 miles. This is just this, this ministry in, that he entered into in Europe, 340 miles, taking the gospel with him, and highly effective. And he paid for it. He paid for it physically. It says here in verse 1, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. This was his custom. Christ did it. Paul's doing it. The wisdom and the logic is very important. This demonstrates that he understood how to bring the gospel into a place where the gospel was never heard and how to leave that place with a church behind him. And we're going to talk about behind him. We're going to find out in just a moment how the church at Philippi was behind him while he was in Thessalonica. The synagogues allowed Paul to reach not only the Jews, but Paul knew there was a large number of Gentiles who became Jews who were in the synagogues too. That would facilitate his work. And here in Thessalonica, not only will he reach Jews and Gentiles in the synagogues, but then after that, he begins reaching Gentiles who are stone-cold pagan. And so we have learned from Acts that there were a healthy amount of Gentile converts belonging to Judaism because they were sick of the paganism. And when Paul comes and preaches from the scriptures, showing them that your Messiah has come, and they murdered him, but he's coming back. And that's a big part of the problem and a big part of the solution. And Paul knew that all men could be saved. He knew that everyone could be saved if they heard the gospel. He writes to Timothy years later, speaking of God, our Savior, who desire, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4. That's an important verse. It's sort of overlooked. And I don't know why. But way to go, Paul. Taking the gospel, taking the beatings that come with bringing the gospel to the lost souls. I mean, we get bent out of shape when someone has the audacity to mock our faith a little bit. The prophecies that Paul preached to the Jews and the Gentiles that were converted to Judaism were very interesting to them. But that's not enough. It's not enough to be interested by what you hear concerning God. You have, it has to be, at some point, it has to be action. And therefore, by reason and logic, they should have been ready to understand that this Jesus of Nazareth was their Messiah. You can reference Acts 13, verses 32-39, and there he does it again. Or he had already done it many times, but there it is documented also. But he goes to the synagogues first because the Jews had the advantage at this point in history. They had the advantage and they were privileged. They had the advantage of the scriptures. They knew the origins of man, of sin. They had been exposed to the revelation of God through the prophets and the writings that we call the Old Testament. Because again, the New Testament was being formed. It was not yet here, not as we know it. And this allowed the Jews, who were raised under the teachings of the Old Testament, to have this heightened understanding of Messiah when Paul comes along and he puts it all together for them. 
It's like he takes the pieces of the puzzle, the, the individual pieces being the prophecies concerning Messiah, and he puts them together right in front of them during his sermon. And many believed, which meant those who didn't believe had no excuse. Well, why didn't you get it? He got it. We read in Romans chapter 1, which he hasn't written yet, the Roman letter. But when he does write it, he says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So when he entered into a synagogue, he began preaching Christ. He did not have to explain who Isaiah was, what the book of Genesis was about. He did not have to tell them about Bethlehem and the prophet from Micah. They would have been familiar with those things. Had he just gone out to pagan Gentiles and said, let me tell you what the prophet Isaiah said, they would be bogged down. Who's Isaiah? And they would have more questions than they could listen to the answers. It wouldn't allow them to live. They had so many questions going on. So the synagogue cut all that out of the way. Things have changed since then. In America, everybody knows the name of Jesus Christ. They even use it as on borderline expletive, blasphemy, Jesus Christ, I can't believe it. There's that ignorance, born of hell, that people have embraced, use it daily, that's where we should come in and explain to them, listen, do you even know what you're doing? How come you don't say, you know, Muhammad, I can't believe it. How come it's Jesus Christ you got to pick out? Well, what advantage has the child born in a Christian home or those who receive solid preaching if they don't do anything with it? And Paul was taking advantage. He knew these Jews, again, they, they were raised under the Scriptures. What are they going to do with it now? And so this is all relevant. You sit in church, especially you who are still, who, are, who have been raised in Christian homes, what are you going to do with this? advantage that you have. You can mess it up. The Jews did. Many of them did. The majority of them did here in Thessalonica. But the Jewish morals, they surpassed the Gentile religions. The Gentiles had nothing like what Judaism had to offer. And then when Christ comes along and begins to develop all of that, it's even better. All of the Lord's apostles were Jews. Because, again, they were raised with the prophecies. It eliminated a lot of explanations and, and wasted waste of time. And evidenced by the church growth in Jerusalem in the early days, after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, and which is documented in the book of Acts, we see that it, is very, it was very effective and can be very effective. And so if you're raised in a Christian home, the lessons you gain from Christ can be very effective for Christ. Or it could work against you. It's your choice. You can turn from Christ to the world. Or you can turn to Christ and be used in the world. And so, again, the Jews did not have to learn or relearn or unlearn in the same way that the Gentiles had to. And the Gentiles, of course, they were raised with idolatry and paganism. But when they came to Judaism, a lot of that was filtered out. Verse 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, as was his custom, and had said the same about the Lord Jesus. Now, three Sabbaths, 
It's almost a month. It gave them plenty of time to think about what he was preaching. But also, it's important to understand that the three Sabbaths does not mean Paul ministered in Thessalonica for only three weeks. Not at all. He began in the synagogues, but when the majority of the Jews rejected the message that he preached to them, then Paul turned and invested his ministry with the Gentiles. And, and some of the Jews, some of the Jews came out of the synagogue and the Gentile Jews with them, but then the pagan Jews began to come. And he's going to, he writes about that in the Thessalonian letter, which maybe I'll get to or not, I, I don't know yet, but uh, uh, <clears throat> the Jews who received Jesus were with him as well as the, the converts. Paul began winning Gentiles outside. Well, maybe this is a good time. See, when, we, when he writes the Thessalonian letter, not long after he was chased out of the city, is one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. And he's talking about what other Christians are saying about this new church in Thessalonica that he was forced to leave. So chronologically, I'm moving forward a few months from this moment here in Acts 17.2. He says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols and served the living God and the true God. So that little verse in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, he's making a distinction between the Jews who believed, the Gentiles who believed who were going to the Jewish synagogue, and then the Gentiles who were just flat out pagan. And devil, the devil can't handle this. I'm not going to stand for this. But the skill, the spiritual skill of Paul was developed because he exercised his faith. He put it to work. And this is a remarkable thing about what's going on here. We know he was there for a while because when he writes to the Thessalonians, he tells them, uh, you know, that he worked as a tent maker and he lets them know he was there for a while. But here's something that's quite remarkable concerning the church at Philippi that he was chased out of before he gets to Thessalonica. They sent money to him from Philippi in Thessalonica no less than two times. We read that in Philippians 4, 15 and 16. That little church that was a fledgling church, a new church. Remember, he left like Luke and some others there. They're sending money all the way to some 75 miles to Thessalonica. Why did they do that? Well, the Spirit of God was opening their eyes to their need and that they belonged to the body of Christ. And word must have gotten to them that Paul's working on making tents and sails, working in... With those heavy canvases, materials, and then going on to preach, and they said, "No, we, we can't have that. We need to help him. He has too much to give to a congregation." So they they did something about it. They sent money more than once, and it moved him because again, when he writes to the Philippians much later, he point he re, he recalls this with them. He fa- he. Hell, hell feared this man for good reason, and the church at Philippi was an example of the reasons why they feared him. The work he achieved in Philippi with those believers, and that he was duplicating here in Thessalonica, and will go on to do in Berea and, and so forth. Hell was afraid of this man, and they had good reason to be so. Is hell afraid of me for anything? 
Does it have good reason to be so? It's because Paul and the men with him, they labored in the spirit and it showed up in the life. It's not enough to go to church and enjoy a sermon. If that's all you do, you're just getting your ears tickled. You're not really doing anything with what God is pouring into you through this system of preaching that he has ordained. This man was skilled at his Christianity. The question is, am I skilled with my Christianity? And if not, what do I have to do to become a skilled Christian in preaching the word and leaving an example? And I, I would submit the first step of after, of course, plugging. Look, the local church, Christ died for it, gave his blood for the church. That should instantly alert us how important this is. What should also alert us to how important it is to be loyal to the local church is how often Satan attacks it. Satan often gives more attention to the local church than the believers in the local church. Well, getting plugged in is a big help because there's a a process of discipleship. But using, applying your faith according to the scriptures and your devotional time will help with that very much. These are big deals. But I fear a lot of Christians don't think they're big deals. I think a lot of Christians go to church because they have to go to church because the Bible tells them to go to church. But they'd like to stay home and eat Cheez-Its or something. (laughs) Well, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. It tells us here in verse 2, faith from truth calls for reason to commit to its logical conclusion. What does that mean? If you, by faith, Faith is receiving the truth. It is never a jump into the dark. It is a jump into the light based on information. You have enough information to make a move. You've taken enough parts of the puzzle and put them together to know what the picture is. And you act on it. You commit to what you see is true. Intellectual dishonesty, which is lying to oneself, just another, somebody's come up with another way to say lying to yourself, it's a subtle foe. And a lot of people exercise it. When they don't care for something that's true, they become dishonest with themselves, and they don't connect. They don't make the, draw the conclusions and commit to it. And the Jews in this church that were hearing him preach from the Scriptures, things that were inescapable, Many of them were dishonest, refusing to form logical conclusions, conclusions that were glaring at them. This happens to this very day. You don't have to be Jewish for this. You would be anybody. Reason from the scriptures is so important because no one stumbles into salvation on their own. Paul wrote to the Romans, How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, when he says preacher here, it's not in the context of pulpit preaching alone. It is also individual Christians sharing the faith. And then he adds in that same section of Romans 10, so then, this is his conclusion from that logic. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Well, how did he get to that? Because he's so skilled at doing it, it became him. Here he is doing the very thing. Creating faith in those who are honest enough 
to receive it from hearing the word. Faith links our fallen intellect to God, and that intellect is no longer fallen. You become a new creation. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers among men, he makes this comment. He's talking about Jeremiah's comment to God that God can do all things. He's, nothing's impossible. And then he, Spurgeon comments, this gave a majesty to the early saints that they dared to do at God's command things which were, but which carnal reason would condemn. In other words, they, they acted on faith and the world would mock them for this. And then he, he qualifies it. He says, whether it be a Noah who is to build a ship on dry land. Now remember, when Noah built that ship, there was no such thing as rain. It had not rained until that ark was completed and they were in it. And Abraham, who is to offer up his only son. Of course the world would go at that one. Or Moses, who is to despise the treasures of Egypt. Or a Joshua, who is to besiege Jericho seven days using no weapons, but the blast of ram's horns. They all act upon God's command, contrary to the dictates of carnal reason. And the Lord gives them rich a rich reward as a result of their obedient faith. And so there's carnal reason and there is spiritual reason. Paul, reasoning with them from the scriptures, was successful with those who spiritually reasoned through it. And he tell, he's tell, he was telling them that Christ has come. He has fulfilled these, many of these prophecies and no one else can. And to this day... The Jew cannot, the Messiah cannot come. Because how would you tell he's from the top tribe of David? All the records are lost. That window of opportunity has come and it is gone. Christ is either the Messiah or he ain't coming. According to your scripture is what Paul could have said had he listened to this sermon. All right, no jokes. Everybody's Verse 3. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is Messiah. Remember, the, the Greek word Christ, when, by the time it gets to the English, uh, and uh, it's the same as the Jewish word Messiah. And explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> so he's expounding on scriptures. He's opening up. He's taking a verse and he's applying its meaning. He's saying to them, Jesus not only fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, but he also fulfilled the Old Testament types. And the types were that which illustrated the great truths of Christ's coming. And we know he did this because he, when he wrote the Galatian letter, which was already written by this time, he does the very thing. He says, Hagar is a type of the flesh. And he says, you know, Sarah is a type of the, you know, and he goes into how Christ has put it all together for the Jews. And you can reference Genesis 3, which is the, you know, the seed of the woman, uh, which is the virgin birth. Genesis 22, the offering of, of Isaac. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 31, Daniel 9, 26, Messiah being cutting off. And then, uh, you know, the end times prophecy. 
riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9, Zechariah 12.10. Just on and on and on. The Old Testament scripture verses were available to him, and these are the very things he was preaching. But the cross, which offends sinners, it is supposed to offend sinners because sinners are guilty. Everybody's talking about, oh, I'm so offended. I'm so, what about God? Does God get to get offended at anything? God is offended. And the cross is an emblem of that, part of that. Matthew eleven six and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And so when a person is offended by Christ, they're in trouble. But when they're not offended and they see their sin, they are going to be blessed. That's not entirely what that verse means, but that is an application of the verse. The cross is an offense to sinners, but more importantly, sinners are an offense to God. And so when Paul said, when, when Luke says, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now I'll open up a little bit why they were offended. So he's saying he's the one. He's the chosen one. He's distinct from everyone else, ever born, ever known to man. That's what Messiah means, distinct, the, the anointed one. Over the anointed kings and anybody else. And Paul made it clear that he has come. But... Because Messiah did not remain, many of the Jews refused to believe. They knew the prophecies concerning Messiah's suffering. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, for example. They knew those psalms. But they also knew of his glorious kingdom. And that created a problem if they weren't putting the pieces together. They could not or they would not understand the gap between the two events, the coming of Messiah and the second coming of Messiah. And so they rejected it all. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. So Paul was fully aware of what was going on. And just because he knew what was going on and had the skill to deal with it does not mean he could save everyone. Even Christ could not save everyone. Not according to how he has set things up. Free will gets in the way, if you're not careful. A crucified Messiah was a stumbling block for the Jews. His cross is a statement to humanity. You can't understand that statement if you don't open your heart and see what's, what the scriptures are saying. The statement is, one of the statements is, is that man is a moral train wreck before God and therefore unacceptable to God, unworthy of him. That man needs a savior. This is the Christian message. And you know, like I know, when you share the cross with somebody, if they don't have a need for their sin to be dealt with by one who is sinless and greater than them and eternal, then they're going to stay a sinner, lost in their sins. And both Jew and Greek alike at this time, did not think they were as bad as Christ was making them out to be. They were worse than what Christ was making them out to be. And Isaiah had already called that when he said, your righteousness is like filthy rags to God. Don't be bringing your righteousness up to God. Say, oh, look at how good I am. It's a sham. And here in Thessalonica, converts were made of the believing Jews, the Gentiles, the pagans, because of the preaching of the word of Christ. And when the Gentiles from outside the synagogues began to come in, there's a lot of conversation on why they believe what they believe from the Scripture. 
In verse 4, and some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Now, these are the ones coming out of the synagogue, not yet the ones that he writes to the Thessalonians about how you turn to God from idols. These are the ones that already turned from the idols to the God of Moses, and then realized at the preaching of Paul, hey, wait a minute, the Messiah that Moses and everyone else is preaching is Christ. We believe it. Well, they weren't made to feel comfortable in the synagogue any longer. He persuaded them by preaching the word with reason, not with persuasive words. Trying to impress them with his, you know, vocabulary and his... uh, Here's what he writes to the Corinthians. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So he says, when I preach to you, I preach to you the truth and the anointing of the Spirit. And that moved your hearts to salvation. I wasn't there trying to impress you or trying to trick you or compete with other thoughts. I laid out the truth. And then he writes to the Thessalonians, this church that is being born in this chapter. In the second chapter of Thessalonians, he says, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. These are the kind of things we want to say to unbelievers. It's so hard to reach them. Don't be discouraged. Just double down, circle the wagons, ramp up your prayer. As I said Wednesday night, if you hear things from a pulpit and you say, boy, I wish... I wish I could say that to so-and-so. I wish so-and-so could be here to hear that. Then double down on your prayer life on that particular item too. Begin to pray that. Lord, help me bring them to church. I used to love bringing people to church. Now I've developed an uncanny way of chasing them out of the church. (laughs) To the Jew, the cross was an emblem of sin because the Old Testament said, he who hangs on the cross is accursed. And is accursed and Christ was accursed on the cross for our sins. He took our sins on him, the sinless one becoming a sinner on our behalf. To the Romans, it was an emblem of utter defeat. How could you have a Lord? How could you have a king that allowed himself to be crucified after he professed all these things? So they couldn't figure that out. And they needed someone to help them. So when you say the shame of the cross is against who he confessed to be, you would go to the Old Testament and say, no, because the Old Testament, the Bible, said this would be the case. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crucified for our sins. He wasn't crucified so that he could set up his kingdom immediately on earth. And you've got to understand this timetable of God. It says a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few leading women joined him. Again, they, they, they loved, they gobbled up the truth. They, they saw the puzzle come together and they said, okay, we're going to do something about this. We're going to line up with this truth. We're going to set our lives in order behind this truth. And the proof of that is just in his letter to the Thessalonians, where he applauds their Christianity. In verse 5 now, but the Jews were not, persu- but the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, <clears throat> took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring 
them out to the people. Well, these are those that not only rejected the message, but they hated it. They saw it as an opponent, a competitor, and they weren't going to stand for it. You're seeing a lot of this in India now. The Hindus are just becoming more and more intolerant of Christianity. Um, <clears throat> not, nothing new about that. But Isaiah prophesied about this very thing. And maybe Paul read this to them. Isaiah 65, too. I have stretched out my hand, hands all day long to a rebellious people. He's talking about the Jewish people, as a people, not individuals. Who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. And so he says, I've reached out to you, but you just rebelled. And he will further to tell how he's going to, they're going to be envious when other peoples begin to come to Christ. And that's what we're seeing happen here. And so it says in verse 5, that he took, they took some of the evil men from the marketplace. So the devil, ha the devil has his anti-missionaries. You know, if, if you make a tank, a war tank, Somebody's going to come up with an anti-tank response. If you make uh, bombers, airplane bombers, someone's going to come with an anti-aircraft response. This is war. And it's true in Christianity. If you follow the Lord, if you become a moving target, the enemy will try to come up with ways to bring you down nonetheless. Satan is not going to say, boy, they're really dedicated. We should leave them alone. That's not going to happen. It'd be the other way around. And so the book of Job is that story. Took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Now, if you have the old King James translation, it is far more poetic. Lewd men of the baser sort. I'm glad we don't talk that way today, but I am glad I know how I, I have that memorized. It's so poetic. It's the lewd men. These are foul creatures. These were thugs. They had nothing to do with religion. They'd do whatever you wanted them to do if you paid them. Gathering a mob set all the city in, a, in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. This is hell at work. And the truth of the gospel, as Jesus promised, would bring division. And we're looking at it. But it would also bring converts. It would be worth it. Maybe you're going through stuff in your life. But you're still serving. Because Christ is worth it. That's what we see. He is worthy. Whatever you're going through, he is worthy of my loyalty and devotion. And whatever I'm going through does not kill that. If you get sick, you end up in court, lose your job, whatever it may be, we don't disqualify him and say, well, he can't be my God anymore. Because if he was my God and loved me, he'd protect me from everything. That's not rational thinking. The... Gentiles might have had that argument, and they may have said, well, where's your Bible tell us about that? And he would just simply take them to Genesis chapter 3 and show them the consequence of a cursed world. Because God wants a people who will love him by faith. The angels can't do that. They've seen the throne of God. They are in heaven. They have seen God. We have not. And yet, we know him. And we love him. And the angels, we have no knowledge of them suffering like we do for the kingdom. And that's why Paul says we will judge the angels. I mean, that contrast will be so stark that it will be a blessing. Well, the truth of the gospel brought the division. Jason, he is being persecuted because he housed many of Paul, of Paul and his, his party. 
it costs something to belong to Christ. Just that little experience that Jason is going through here. Here he is minding his own business, you know, before Paul gets there. Paul shows up, marks from the beating in Philippi, still on him fresh, and Silas. He goes into the synagogue, he begins to preach. He's moved by, Jason is moved by what he hears, and he becomes an ally. And because he is an ally with Christ now, and Christ's servants, the mob attacks him. It costs something to belong to Jesus. And if it doesn't, maybe you've got homework to do. It says, and sought to bring them out to the people. That's Paul and the company. Going back to Thessalonians, here's what Paul had to say about his time there. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our gospel to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. He says, hell can't stop us. This man is skilled at being a Christian because he's been responsive to the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit, Spirit told him to do something he didn't want to do, he'd do it. Because he was under orders. Earlier in Pisidia, Antioch, he suffered persecution in Iconium, in Lystra, Philippi, Damascus. And yet he still kept going. How much of Paul did hate, was hated by hell? Every bit of him. And that's true for any believer. Just because we don't read about the exploits of Peter and John doesn't mean they weren't out there doing things too. Verse 6. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Well, here's where, you know, um, they didn't find him at Jason's house. That's why they targeted him. Um, These agitators identified who believed in Christ and who didn't, who received the message and who did not. Well, someone pointed it out to them. So they're they're just acting on that information. It says, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Well, word began to circulate that there was a new faith in town and that people were abandoning idols. You can't have a statue of God. You can't have a statue that you pray to thinking that's going to get you to God. The just shall live by faith. And we walk by faith. Faith, not by sight. And all the Old Testament is this war between those who wanted to pray to figurines and pictures and statues and stuff versus those who were obedient to God when he said, you shall have no images like that before me. Well, it's still happening. Satan, again, does not have to come up with new tactics because the old ones work just fine. And he can't come up with a tactic that can silence skilled Christians. And so they are accused of turning the world upside down. In Psalm 146, it says, after the blessings, it says, the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. So who's upright and who's not? Well, look at history. Look at the news. Look at the entertainment world and the people in it. Look at politics. The world is not right side up. We have no history of the world being right side up except everything that happens before Genesis 3. Two chapters of the world right side up. And the rest goes south after that. Sin did that to mankind, to humanity. and makes fools of all of us. Are there churches opposed to turning the world upside down? You, you can answer that. 
we, we know that many churches and Christians are asking the world how to succeed and not coming to Christ. They get a big problem in their life. They don't go to the church and ask the pastor, Lord, you know, either pray for me or what does the Bible say about this? Because that's really the extent of a pastor's counsel. This is what Scripture says. It says of the Lord Jesus and the Godhead that they are the wonderful counselors. Uh, we defer you to them. From this pulpit, counseling happens every time the pulpit's turned on. And it just comes from, from Scripture. And the Holy Spirit knows how to come next to you, single you out from everybody else in this room, and He can do it. He does it. He, can, he does and can do to everybody at the same time. Single each one out and point out the things that is between them and Him just based on what the pastor's saying. And the pastor doesn't know this. He doesn't know this is going on. Someone may tell him later. This is the genius of the church. Because... Again, you're not going to get that at Wawa. It's probably the first time I've used that word. And I never, I, I don't feel like an adult now. But anyhow, they should really come up. I won't go in there until they change their name. Anyhow, <laughs> some of you have the points from, never mind. All right. Contrary to Caesar, they, uh, verse 7, Jason has harbored them, they said. He's taking care of them. That's what a harbor does. It takes care of. And these are all acting contrary to the decree of Caesar saying, there is another king, Jesus. I'm in verse 7. So contrary to Caesar, here we go again, same kind of junk that he faced at Philippi, although Jason's facing it. Who knows where Paul is at the time? We know he's not at. Wow. <laughs> so they politicized religion so they can outlaw this religion. And it was pretty complicated in those days, they're essentially accusing them of sedition, going against the government, because the social life, the political life, and the religious life of the Romans was all interlocked. You couldn't violate, you know, one without violating the other two also. And so when they, another religion is preached that's not sanctioned by the state, by Rome, then you're attacking the political and the social and the Roman government. The Jews got a pass on this Overall, there were sometimes they were pressured, but Rome looked the other way with the Jews. The Christians aren't yet being persecuted because Rome hasn't figured out yet that Christianity is not a part of Judaism. At this point, the world thinks Christianity is a sect of Judaism. Once they find out how what, these are two different religions, they're not reconcilable, then they will ramp up their attacks on Christianity and the persecutions will come and many will die men, women, and children, because of their faith. These fellows here are saying they're attacking our religious element that belongs to the social and political. And you know if we let this keep going, it's going to just ruin Rome. Well, we don't date our checks by Rome, do we? Who won? So, again, to voice support for a king other than Caesar alone was a capital crime. It wasn't as stark as that, but they're trying to make it be so. The first message of a Christian was, was the first, I think, when I go back to my salvation, I think of <clears throat> my realization that he is king of kings. He is Lord. That was like the first, I was wrong. He is the ruler. I am the created subject 
under his authority. Now, I didn't articulate it that way, but instantly I knew Christ was king of kings. And this has to be our message, the first message of the church. Jesus is Lord. Nobody's like him. It's in the, it's in the distinction. The, the title is Lord. The name is Jesus. What is the distinction? And you should know this if you've been coming here. Christ. His anointing distinguishes him from everybody else, as I mentioned earlier. And so, Christ enthroned is the first message of the church to a world that has Satan as their God. And they don't even know it. I don't believe in Satan, but they serve him. Then you have Christians who say, I believe in Christ, and they don't serve him. Kind of paradox here. Second Corinthians 4, speaking of the world, he says, Whose mind the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. <clears throat> to say that Christ is the image of God is the same thing as saying he is equal with God, which is just it's flat out stated in the Philippian letter, because he is God the Son. He is a member of the triune God that we understand from the scripture. Verse 8. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Well, the mob succeeded in getting local government against the Christians. The Christians are going to get wind of this, the other Christians, and they're going to get Paul out of the city before he suffers like he did in Philippi, or maybe worse. Verse 9. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Baal was posted, in other words, to pressure them to come back for a hearing and get their money back like it is today. The world, understand, I'm closing with this in case you're like, when is he going to end? <laughs> well, before, once I finish with this, we'll stand and read Leviticus. <laughs> <laughs> the world understands guilt by association. That's what's happening here. Jason, you're guilty. You didn't preach these sermons that Paul did. You didn't bring the church here. Paul did. But you are associated with him as an ally. Therefore, we're going to get you. The world understands guilt by association. How many gullible Christians apparently don't? They think that they can associate with things that Christ has condemned and not be soiled by it. It's called spiritual discernment. And those that don't have it, don't have it either because they think they have it and they're just proud and arrogant or not well trained in scripture or they, they don't understand it. They'll just leave it there. And I have spoken with Christians who, who like bad ministries and at the same time have boasted to me that they have the gift of discernment and lying, incidentally. You also have the gift of lying. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a lie if you didn't mean to tell it, right? It's just not true. Either way, we, uh, we stir up ourselves with these truths from the Scripture, and hopefully they will be used for the kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, again, may we avail ourselves of these preserved lessons. They are here for us to do something for you with. And may you find us ready uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, as the saying goes, to carry out your commandments. If you have been listening and you've not ever opened your heart to Christ, you have an opportunity right now. If you've heard nothing I said, maybe you've 
felt the Holy Spirit drawing you nonetheless. If you would like to receive the salvation that Paul preached to the Jews and Gentiles here in Thessalonica, that the Spirit of God preaches to this day, if you want to receive the salvation that you need to pardon you from your sin, which not only have we original sin, but we have stacked up individual sins to go with it. You need a Savior. All you need to do is make this prayer with me in earnest, and God will receive you, and your sin will be washed away, and your relationship with Him will begin. And He will be to you not only the one who saves your soul from judgment on judgment day for you, but He'll also be the one who rules over your life right now through all eternity. If you make this prayer, if you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. I am guilty. The blame is on me. And I ask you to forgive me. I come to you. There's no one else to go to. No one else died for me. No one else is good enough to die for me. And no one else is as powerful as you are to rise again from the dead. I give my life to you and ask that you would indeed rule over me from this day forward. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, and may you be my Savior and everyone know it. And now, Father, for those who have prayed these things this morning, uh, may they act upon it. May you protect them. In Jesus' name, amen.